welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Getting back into the swing of things. Yeah. Speaking of swing and music and dancing, I was in New Orleans. Oh, okay. That's where I was. Swinging. Bopping, probably. Sure. What, what, do jazz, what do jazz cats do? Jazz cats swing, right? Probably, yeah. Yeah, so I guess I was swinging like, like jazz cats do um, <laughs> in New Orleans uh, from Mardi Gras. It was a fun time. It was... Um, not ideal weather conditions for Mardi Gras. It was uh, about thirty-seven degrees and raining. Uh, but does that you know, does that preclude you from like being able to swing or bop? No, because that's like, all what's good indoors. weather for bopping. I feel like it, 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 anytime you get enough people to bop, you can bop. It doesn't matter okay. what it's like. It doesn't matter what it's like outside. It's bopping weather inside. Okay, if the crowd says it is right, and if, and if the band is. On fire. Yeah. Now, like, your your fiancé, like, did she bop? <laughs> well, uh, okay. Now, now we're getting into Cindy Lauper lyrics <laughs> uh, that mean a whole different thing. Yeah. So we're not going to talk about that. Fair enough. Um, but it was a fun time. Th- I wanted to say thanks to uh, Jason and Kyle for the two of them combined almost filling in for me. Almost. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, thanks to you for, you know, putting up with my being gone. It was probably a lot of fun. It was, it's, yeah, if there is any episode that it would work, that it works out fine, you being gone for, it's that one, not because, you know, you don't have an interesting perspective on the Oscars, but it's, it's fairly easy to plug somebody in, in something like that. I think Jason and Kyle were a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed the conversation. There you go. Um, so I wanted to, before we get to the topic, or I guess the, we're continuing our, uh, 2013 celebrations here uh today i believe it ends with this episode this is it, then it all, now it we all start, ends yeah now we have to start thinking about we've tried to put off thinking about endless love and winter tale yeah. and all the you know robocop all the stuff that's come out yeah but now we're gonna have to yeah. just turn into the wind and let it hit us uh, after this week, uh, this, this week, this weekend was, uh, I know that you're not remarkably interested, but Grand Budapest Hotel, which I've heard is, uh, quite yeah. good. And I, I will see it. Yeah. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited for Ray Fiennes. At this point, I can't and not, I just have to keep up with Wes Anderson just to keep, uh, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't want, so I'm going to be on the main reason I'm going to see this because someone has asked me to be on their podcast to talk about it. Now, who is that? Um, See, I wasn't going to say because I've forgotten. <laughs> oh, all right. I want to say it's Screen Bites. Okay. I want to say it's Screen Bites. I have to check my calendar. All right. Um, see, that makes me sound like a douche that I don't know, um, but I forgot. Or it makes anyway. it sound so popular that who can keep yeah, track these that's days? That's the douchey thing. Um, anyway, uh, but I feel like sometimes, because it's not the first time I've been asked to talk about Wes Anderson on a podcast. Yeah. And I feel like people want me to represent the the i guess the what's the word uh want me to, to antagonize oh oh antagonize yeah yeah, yeah. Wa- they want me to uh be the guy who doesn't like wes anderson movies but the thing is i haven't seen grand Bud- budapest hotel yet i might love it yeah and i go in i just want people to know that i go in to every movie not having my mind made up at all i am willing to be i have a fantastic uh what's it called fantastic mr fox mm-hmm I love that movie. I, I bought the Blu-ray. I watch it. Yeah, I just got uh, watch the, it all the time. Just got the. Oh, nice you Criterion got the Criterion Blu-ray. one. Nice. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, uh, so I, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to Grand Budapest Hotel, even though you know my experience tells me that I won't like it. Yeah. Um, there will always be there are always things in Wes Anderson movies that I like. Right. I yeah. like, um, the whole the 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 whole chase like the whole like third act of Moonrise Kingdom essentially is a long chase scene. I think is amazing. I think that's I really like that part of the movie, and I like when the key gets struck by lightning. That's like my favorite part. <laughs> um. But uh, anyway, uh, I'm getting off track. Speaking of track, oh. I want to talk about two weeks ago, since I wasn't here last week to address it, I brought up the, the term tracking shot, yeah. and it was being, it was being used uh, extensively to talk about this virtuoso long take on True Detective, and I questioned whether or not it was a tracking shot, and I got all kinds of responses. Most mm-hmm. of them, not, you know... Not to my own horn, but most of them backing me up. Yeah. But there were some people saying, and this is another thing that goes beyond movies, saying that, well, yeah, what you're talking about maybe is what tracking shot meant, but this is what it means. Yes. Uh, and I um, I struggle with that because I don't want to be old-fashioned and pedantic about language. Um, it's sort of like, I know that it's correct to say, I wish I were, blank, blank, blank. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people say, I wish I was. Now, that's incorrect, but if enough people say it, then it's correct, because that's the way language works. So, that's true. So, uh, I, have to, I struggle with it, because I want, I want to think about what words mean when I use them. Um, so, uh, I, I don't want to just say, well, this means what it means, because it means that now. But, I, you know, the, it reminds me of another you're one. You're killing me now, like because I'm trying to think... Do I say I wish I was or I wish I were? I think I say were. Yeah, that's correct. And I'm and I'm torn because uh, a number of people, including uh, noted uh, Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman, said uh-huh. that language is the purest form of free market capitalism. Um, it is everybody gets a say, and you know, and and like the purest form of democracy as well. Like like you said society is moving in this way mm-hmm. and you and i are the dinosaurs that say <laughs> we're you know yeah uh, but i have trouble i know one one you have trouble with is that uh people talk about squashing beef yeah. <laughs> because you're thinking about it overly literal which is like gross which i picture someone like putting their flat palm down on like raw ground beef and literally squashing it well it's, but the word is quash well i i view it as like like if there's a rebellion or something. It's like, we got to quash this. Right. That's what I refer. And, but then people have, that word is gone basically. Yeah. Well, but when people say to, to squash beef, they're talking about burying the hatchet. Maybe is another, sure. That's what they're talking about. And I've not heard that phrase until you just said it now. Um, Which one? Uh, quashing beef or squashing beef. I've never heard that before. No, we've talked about this before. We've, we've talked about the term quash before and squash, but I've never heard the term quashing beef. No, it's not quashing or squashing, beef. squashing beef. beef. Whatever, I haven't heard but that it, either. It's it's clearly born of the word quash. Oh, absolutely. To temper something. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, so uh, I know that bothers you, but like that is an idiom on its own now. Yeah, that one is. And just to use it to me, it's just it's one of those things where uh, when it's like we need to quash this rebellion. Uh-huh. Suddenly, I, I'll go back to the rebellion thing. Like. We need to do this. Suddenly, it's it's very it's a very serious sounding thing. We need to squash this somehow. That well, sounds it, and that's what it is in this. When someone's talking about squashing beef, they're talking about a one on one disagreement. Yeah. yeah, 
But when you say, but the word squash, it seems so not serious. <laughs> it seems like any word a five-year-old can use right. and probably does. Right. I feel like it's not for me. So um, this is all to say that um, that the long take in True Detective both was and wasn't a tracking shot. Okay. But it mostly wasn't. <laughs> okay. It, 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 I think it mostly still wasn't. I think because I think. Here's why I think that. I think using the term tracking shot just to mean any uh, extended take, um, it, it leaves you in the dark about what tracking shot is supposed to mean. Because you can have a tracking shot that's very short mm-hmm. or very long. It means a different thing. And so I'm not ready to let go of that meaning because unlike changing quash to squash, yeah. you still have both the word you still have the the idea if i start if we start using if we start re- referring to choreographed virtuosic long takes as tracking shots then what do we call tracking shots right that's why it bothers me but uh i i got a lot of we got a lot specificity, of specificity that's what you're looking for yeah exactly yeah uh so we got a lot of interesting responses just thought i'd bring that up yeah including and i had mentioned uh, my my friend dan that i hate uh, oh. he, he yeah. chimed in with a very intelligent response. Uh, and, uh, don't you hate him all the more for how intelligent it was? Yeah, it was a good, absolutely. it was a really good response. And I hate That's him and I hate that bitch. he, that he won the Oscar draft uh-huh. by a substantial margin. So very frustrating. Yeah. That guy, Dan, he'll get your goat. I hate you. <laughs> I met Dan once. Um, no problems with him, but on your behalf, I hate that guy. Yeah. He's a perfectly nice person. And yet somehow... Somehow, I just hate him so much. So, um, anyway, uh, but he's right. been a big fan of the show for a long time. How long? Uh, I think for him, only a couple of years. Oh, okay. Because he could have been a fan for much longer if he'd been listening since the beginning. That's right. How yes. long would you say, what's the longest that someone could possibly have been a fan of this show? Well, let me hang on. Let me do some quick calculations in my head. Okay. Okay, so... Carry the one seven years. So there's 52 weeks in a year. Mm-hmm. Um, even on a leap year, it doesn't change the number of weeks. Just sure. one day. Yeah. Uh, so 52 times seven is 364. Mm-hmm. Now, listeners, don't look now at your MP3 playing device, but this is episode number 364. That's right. It's our seven year anniversary. Yeah. Starting to feel a little itchy, David. Oh, uh, is that right? Yeah. I, I think I want to. And you know what? Last week I got a nice taste of what it would be to like host oh, this boy. with other people, and uh, yeah, I think I think I got to drop you. Oh no! But um, that's all right. You can go scampering back to your precious Paul Goebel. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and uh, and anytime we hit like a you know every hundredth episode or every fiftieth episode or whatever, uh, I do tend to get a little maudlin. I don't want to do that right now. But what I will say is seven that years isn't actually a. What is the anniversary? I'm gonna you you talk. I'm gonna look up okay. what the seven year anniversary gift is. One thing that that fascinates me about, you know, it, it, the, the thing is, like every year that passes by, I do find myself thinking, just thinking about the role that Battleship Pretension has played in my life, and I won't go into detail about like, oh, how meaningful it has been. I've talked about that in the past. People know it means a lot to me. But what fascinates me is there was a time when. I was recently thinking about, I think, you and I living together, uh-huh. and I realized that when we lived together, the term battleship pretension did not exist. It was not a thing. 
the podcast didn't exist. Yeah. So I've known you a long time, but I think of you so much in terms of my co-host that there, it's hard to believe there was a time when you weren't. Right. It's hard to believe there was a time when we weren't doing this every single week. Um, that's because, this, I mean, this is most of the time we spend together now is that, doing this. That's true, yes. Um, but you're also my best man now. Damn right. That's that's new. Yeah. That's a new chapter. It is, it is a new chapter. Um, so and I, I hope I can live up to it. Seventh anniversary is wool or copper? Wool or copper? Yeah. Good God. I pick copper. Because it sounds better. Like, what an odd choice. Like, why? I'm choosing between two very different things. Yeah, I'm just saying. But I'm not mad at you. I would rather receive a, a wool gift because I'd rather receive a, a suit or a tie or some socks. I would like just a big, just a big bag of copper wiring. Oh, okay. I feel like I would enjoy that. <laughs> um, but uh, but that's you know copper sounds. You know when you hear about like a, you know silver and gold and diamond anniversary, copper is uh, not far off from those. I like I the idea of thinking in terms of metal. It's a rare metal. Yeah, I see. So, um, but I yeah, like and, textiles though. That's just me. Th- yeah. Well, that's the difference between, you know, the difference between you and me. That's, that's why, why we, we make a good that's team. That's why we make a good team. So, uh, but yeah, so thanks to everybody for listening for seven years. It's, uh, been pretty, it's been pretty amazing. It's weird to think of, uh, it's weird to think of not doing this. I, I took a break about a year ago for a yeah. month and by the time I came back, boy, was I ready to come back. You come to realize that though this sometimes feels like an obligation, uh, from time to time, um, like you remove it and you realize, Oh, I'm, I really got to get back into this. <laughs> like I gotta, I gotta talk on mic. People aren't hearing my voice. Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah. People don't know. It's like when I'm reading Twitter and everyone is like saying, uh like gushing over some movie i think is stupid yeah like i don't know short term 12 um at least i know like all right at some point i can let people know how annoyed i am and how much i didn't like this movie i'm not just gonna stew in silence yeah there there are it's thank god for there's multiple avenues you can travel down to let people know okay so yeah um seven years oh boy and uh Here's to another seven. Yeah, not to turn it into this, but, you know, if you enjoyed the show for seven years, you could always donate. It's on the website. That is an option. Top right corner. Yeah. We would love it. Um, But speaking of money, (laughs) speaking of paying the bills, right, we have a sponsor. We had a sponsor last week. You had to read this. Yeah. You got to. Had to. Got to. Yeah, thank you. But people know that I have trouble with certain words. Uh, Trouble bringing myself to say certain words. Okay. I don't have a speech impediment. I'm saying... That certain words just gross me out, and I'm about to have to say one of those a bunch of times. Do you want me to say it? I just thought it'd be. I thought no, this is part of the fun. Yeah, why take? Why keep this just for myself? Yeah. So here we go, ladies and gentlemen. The Zomboobies Kickstarter is off and running. It's been a solid start, but they've still got a long way to go. For those that don't know, Zomboobies is a boobs to the wall horror comedy. It combines a love for insane Japanese horror movies with traditional creature effects, modern digital effects, comedy, action, drama, gore, and of course, boobies. To see exactly how batshit crazy <laughs> Zomboobies is, check out the new trailer on their Kickstarter page. As for rewards, there are tons of them. T-shirts, posters, you can even get killed in the movie by a Zomboobie. And much, much more. So reach out, my fellow horror zombie booby lovers, and give Zomboobies a squeeze. 
Just click on the banner ad at battleshippretension.com to help out. All right. <laughs> you, you, I couldn't look at you. You're enjoying that way too much. It's, it's, ridiculously, <laughs> it's ridiculously fun to say. Um, uh, but yeah. Yeah, check, check out their Kickstarter page. It's a lot of fun. And the minute you watch that trailer, you'll realize, I got it. Right. Yeah. I see what they're doing this here. This is going to be a fun thing. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's one, that's one uh, place that uh, has given us money. There's uh, another place that gives us money on a conditional basis. <laughs> right, if we're good. So, yeah. Uh, and by good, I mean if we convince you to buy earbuds. Yes. You go to tweakedaudio.com. And we don't, you know, these earbuds practically sell themselves. If, I mean, assuming you trust me when I tell you that they sound great and they look sharp. You don't have to trust me on the sharp-looking thing. You go to the website, tweakedaudio.com. You can see for yourself. It's a variety of styles and colors. They're real sharp-looking. They do sound great. I'm here to tell you that. I use them. I also use them. And if you go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension, Mm -hmm. that's where you find their professional quality earbuds uh, in a variety of styles and colors at a low, low price. And you get those by going through the slash pretension portal. You get those for one third off and you don't have to pay any shipping charges mm-hmm. so yeah do all that and, and then yeah still donate to the show yes or uh you can buy at the moment i i uh okay note to self got to put that link back on the page <laughs> uh but yeah uh, and you know you can help out by donating by buying earbuds by buying our first 20 uh, our first 40 episodes for ten dollars yeah you can do that. uh by purchasing our premium episode with bill dwyer like for 29 dollars for twenty nine dollars, that's no, all. Sorry, yeah. it's a dollar twenty nine. Yes, and it uh, and yeah, so it's there's a lot of ways that you can help support the show and you get something out of it. Donating is always appreciated, but if you want to get something out of it aside from the multiple hours, I started calculating out how many hours we've been talking because you were reading the out- outliers and you're like, are we experts yet? <laughs> have I we did, done ten thousand hours? I did have that thought, and I don't think we're there yet. But what I will say no, we're is, nowhere near ten thousand. I got through episode two hundred. I, I was noting certain milestones. The first episode where we recorded it for an hour uh-huh. was episode twenty-seven. Wow, it with, took us that long to get to an hour with Paul Goebel. Wow. First time we hit two hours. Okay. Was years later. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't remember the specific date, but it was when you and I were going over our our top 10 of 2009. Okay. That was just over two hours. When did we hit three? Uh, that one, I don't, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, as, I, as I'm going through, uh, I'll see. But I, I've been cataloging. Um, and by the way, I'm not even including uh, supplements I'm, or right. live shows. I'm just going straight episodes. And uh, yeah, and so I've, I've been cataloging through uh, episode 200, and we're already at about like eight or nine days. Like just if you started listening mm-hmm. from zero to 200, uh-huh. you would be listening for eight days straight. That doesn't seem like enough. It doesn't seem like enough. But think of how ins- like <laughs> if you if you decided I'm going to listen to the first 200 episodes with no interruption, you'll die. Let's look at it like you that. Eat. No, I guess you wouldn't sleep though. Yeah, you, you wouldn't go, you be sleeping. Insane. You might you go insane after day like six. Uh-huh. Then you still got two more days, and you'd also be listening to our horse shit. So you'd likely kill yourself, right? So or kill us. We do have a PO box that you could probably just send anything into. You know, like uh, anthrax, you know, whatever. Okay. Um, 
I'm the one who checks the PO box. So. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so yeah, it's, that's, that's a lot of fun. What, how did we, how did I get on that? No idea. Oh, well, we were talking about donating. Oh yes, that's right. So there's a lot of different ways that you can, that you can uh, help us out and we appreciate yeah. them all the time. Okay. So let's get into it, shall we? All right. This is, as we said, this is the final episode in our celebration of the year that was, um, and we do this every year. It's our uh, it's our individual achievements. We did two weeks ago our best of, which was just best movies, mm-hmm. and then last week we did the the Oscar show, and now we wrap it up with talking about individual achievements, acting, yeah. writing, so on and so forth, and various. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. And I will say that for myself, I try to like for example, uh, in like the best lead actress category. Uh, it would be very easy for me to just talk about Julia Louis-Dreyfus, except I already did. So I try to keep it to stuff that I didn't talk much about. Oh, okay. Um, because I don't want to just repeat what I've said already. So, because um, I, I want to try and be a little uh, thinking outside the box here. So, uh, so the categories that I've picked for myself are director, actor, actress, supporting actress, supporting actor, screenplay... Uh, and then I have two miscellaneous. One is best original. Sorry, I'm thinking in terms of Oscars. Just original song. Mm-hmm. And then one is uh, cinematography. So, um, okay. and we don't have to do these in any particular order. We can jump around a little bit. Um, I know that you're winging it. So Yeah, I've been on vacation. I haven't, didn't actually, you know, write these down. But Yeah, and you, haven't, uh, and you haven't seen the most recent episode of Amazing Race, have you? No, I haven't. Oh, Nor boy. have I seen the most recent uh, True Detective. Oh, I should man. be catching up on both of those tonight. Yeah, get on that. So, uh, okay. So how about this? I'll ask you about category and then I'll start off and then I'll jump, I'll throw to you. So what category would you like to do? No, I I think you should, you should be the guiding, you should guide this. All right, fine. I did. I guided supporting actress. I've already decided. Okay. Supporting actress. Um, uh, I I think I, I think I submitted, uh, her for, uh, the BP and that is uh, Elizabeth Banks for The Hunger Games Catching Fire. Hmm. Uh, I thought she was... Re- and I think one or two other people submitted her as well. Uh, I enjoy... First off, I really liked the, the latest... Uh, the new Hunger Games film. I really uh, responded to it. And her character is a very difficult one to navigate. Um, because she is very much of the world. Um you know, she dresses in kind of that silly way. She is, um, she kind of has that snobbish upper class thing that, that you associate with, uh, the people in power. Uh, but she is not without her emotion. And in the film you get to see so far, we've just associated with her with just focusing only on the surface and that sort of thing. But as time has gone on, she has come to actually really, uh, love and appreciate uh, Peta and Katniss, but she can't break her. Mm-hmm. So, she, so Elizabeth Banks has to telegraph how she is feeling while only ever showing the veneer that this character has put on. I think it speaks to why I like the sequel so much um, in that unlike a lot of bad sequels that are just trying to tell the same story again, mm-hmm. um, Everything that happens, not just story, but character-wise in Catching Fire, is informed by what happened in the first movie. Yeah. And you appreciate Elizabeth Banks' performance different, like, deep, more deeply. Yeah. 
by seeing how the events of the first film have changed her. Yeah. And, and I like the way her character is written as well. And that's the thing. It's not as though she never lets the mask slip, but like there's one moment where she talks about, we should, she's focusing on the, the, the Mockingjay pin, the gold Mockingjay pin. And she says, it's gold. So we should, we should all wear something gold as a way of showing that we're a team. And the way that she puts that out there, like I, I'm almost welling up now because it's just, this is the only way she knows how to do this. Like showing that we are all together. I'm not going to be killed though. You might be. So what can I do to show solidarity? This is all I can think of. And then when she finally actually, and then she follows through on it because it's all she, it's all she has. And I really, there's a number of ways to play that character, but you, it is something of a tightrope where you don't want to go too far this way, too far that way. Otherwise it doesn't quite work. Uh, and then also, um, over on more than one lesson, we talked about hunger games and, uh, I believe Josh mentioned that the character is also very aware that though she is a representative of the capital, she's also genuinely aware of how completely expendable she is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's always a little bit of fear behind what she does. And and she plays all of it. I, I think Elizabeth Banks is, is kind of an, an underrated actress. I don't think anybody thinks she's bad. I think people like her a lot. Right. But I think she's somebody who – and you, you and I have talked about this before – she definitely has like comedic chops and I think she utilizes those in non-comedic roles. And this is kind of a funny part yeah. in the last movie, this movie, not so much. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, but she utilizes stu- humor to kind of disarm you and then hits you like with an emotional punch. And, uh, and I, I loved her in the film. That really, uh, the way you described the use of humor feeds into, uh, dovetails with, with, with what I'm going to say for best supporting actress, and I am. By the way, I'm going to already right off the bat cheat and do a tie. Okay, um, and I'll tell you why because one of these two we did talk uh, somewhat about two weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, and also because in a way the char- the characters are what they represent in the movies are very similar. So my tie is going to be Michaela Wat- Michaela Watkins for In a World, okay, and Tony Collette for Enough Said, okay, uh, because these are both movies that are mostly about single women. The main character is a single woman, and you know, mm-hmm. embarking in either on a career thing and in a world which also has a romantic con- uh, um, con- context to it. Sure. Uh, or um, I'm not sure what the word is I'm looking for. A subset of the movie is romantic, but uh, and then enough said is uh, about a woman, you know, starting a new relationship. Mm-hmm. And so you're getting those are sort of those are where movies tend to live in those big, big life moments. And I like that both those movies. Um, take time to also depict uh, relationships, you know, marriages that are in in the middle of things. Yeah. Um, and both movies are blessed to have uh, great, uh, great actresses in the in those roles. We talked about uh, Michaela Watkins, um, who uh, we t- the thing we talked about two weeks ago was the, a scene where she sort of comes home in a good mood. Um, and has to sort of turn on a dime when she realizes something. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's a, it's a big quiet moment. And I credit Lake Bell with not lingering on it too long. Cause we know that it's devastating and it doesn't, but, uh, she plays it very well. Uh, but, uh, uh, and I, and I feel like Tony Collette is maybe her character is, 
in a place where Michaela Watkins' character probably was shortly before the movie the movie started. Yeah. You know, in in another month or two, I could see Tony Collette being uh, where where Michaela Watkins is. Yeah. Um, where they're both in love with the people they're married to, but those people have been the same so long that they're maybe a little overly focused on the things that annoy them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not excited. And part of that is um, the men's fault as well, that they have become complacent yeah. uh, and have, uh, you know, ceased to consider how they might be seen as uh, exciting or sexual parts of their, uh, their, their wives lives. Uh, but um, I, I, I like that the movie, both movies, I feel like because I'm so bad at talking about performances, I keep talking about the movie more than mm-hmm. the performance. But mo- both movies um, don't make it trite or black and white about like, oh well, this guy's a jerk, so it's okay that she is that her eye is wandering. Yeah, maybe uh, in, in Michaela Watson, Watkins Watkins case, um, but the uh, uh, I, I feel I feel like those. It's it's more subtle and probably more difficult to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of um, that sort of malaise or uh, restlessness, yeah, uh, while still loving the person, and also maybe in a little bit, um, especially with Michaela Watkins, maybe hating hating yourself a little bit for the feelings that you're having. Absolutely, yeah. That's there's a. You know, because you can't play pure dissatisfaction because they do love and care for the their husbands. Um, yeah. And so there but there needs to be a little bit of a and these characters are a little bit older. They're not like in their 20s or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there needs to be a little bit of a. I can't think of a better word except for just like worn down or worn out. Just. You know, life, whether it be a marriage or your career or whatever, like it just starts to take its toll on you. And you find like in some cases you're very resistant to some things. In other cases, you find your resistance worn down just a little bit. And if you feel like you can always expect the same thing when you get home, no surprises ever, then suddenly you find yourself more susceptible to to certain things. And so while not straight up rejecting the thing that you genuinely love, but the thing that has kind of bored you. It's one of the reasons that I love the movie Unfaithful is that uh, her affair is never a straight up rejection of her husband. I do think it is a betrayal of her husband, but it is right. not a rejection. Yeah. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah. And so playing that, it's it goes back to that tightrope thing. You go too far in one direction or another where just like you show total distaste for your husband and then people are just like, okay, well, this woman's just a jerk because these guys aren't so bad. They need to convey it's just not even boredom. It's just familiarity. And sometimes what's unfamiliar is fun. So, yeah, and okay. it's and those two the two characters are very similar now that you mention it. Um okay, so next I'll jump to lead actor. Okay. Uh looking at this, I realize that comedy seems to be an uh, uh, a lingering thing in my choices. And though I said uh 2 weeks ago that The World's End is I think a bit overrated even though very effective in other uh-huh. places. Simon Pegg, on the other hand, I think is astounding. I love the work he is doing. Uh, 
he just brings, I love the work everybody is doing, mm-hmm. but he really brings such a vibrance to his role and a, and a kind of crackling nervous energy. Like, you know that you would not want to hang out with this guy mm-hmm. in life. Thankfully, you're just watching a movie so you can enjoy it. And, and sometimes you laugh out of just pure incredulity. Like how on earth did he think this was okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and so from a, from a purely humor standpoint, I think he's great. And it's a total commitment on the part of Simon Pegg. Like you cannot wink at us. You cannot judge this character. You have to see where he's coming from and just, you know, and bet it all. And so he does. But then what I also, but of course he also knows something that is eventually revealed to us, which is this character's made a number of bad decisions, mm-hmm. uh, and is trying to make up for it. And so a lot of his energy does seem to be, I feel like it's eventually revealed that he's kind of trying to talk himself into something, um, and talk himself into, Oh, this is a good idea. I haven't made, you know, I haven't ruined, I haven't wasted my life. And just the, the way that, you know, I, I, I've known a number of people in my life and some of whom uh, are maybe a little bit hung up on how things were. Um, whatever that is, I won't even say it's the standard. Oh, people who are popular in high school just wish they could get that back. Cause I've found that to not always be the case. Um, but people just, and including me, like, I think it's, it's easy to look back at a certain time in your life, whether it be high school or college or whatever, and say, Oh, I wish I could get that back. And, and sometimes there's just a slight flicker that you can have it back, but just for a moment, like anytime I go back to visit Chicago or I go visit Denver, or I see an old friend and we get a little bit of the old spark back in, in our interaction. Part of me is like, Oh, Oh boy. I thought this was gone, but it's not. Uh-huh. And I feel like that level of energy and that excitement that, Oh, this thing that I considered to be the best night of my life, I can do it now. And, but he's also, there's that initial spark. Also, he's adding to it by trying to maybe talk himself into this thing's going to work. This is going to be the best. Uh, and so there's an inherent sadness. There's a manic quality to his performance that goes with the sadness all while being genuinely funny. Cause that's the thing. Again, if you're not careful, the character becomes too pathetic to laugh at, mm-hmm. but he doesn't. I'm always laughing. I think he's great. Yeah. And, and I, I, I love his performance. I have nothing to add. I completely agree with you. Okay. Uh, lead actor for me. Um, this was my number one movie of the year, so it shouldn't come as a surprise. But I'm going with Tony Servillo ah. for The Great Beauty. Uh, because, um, you know, I think it, there, there's there's a, maybe a pretentiousness to the idea of referring to an, what an actor does with his voice or face or body as his instrument. Mm-hmm. But Tony Servillo is so expressive in so many different ways, physically and vocally and facially. Um that he uh he's acting he's acting with ev- with every centimeter of himself at all times but whatever not without ever overdoing it uh i think this is i don't know if you've seen you've seen stills from the movie so you know what the yeah. guy's face looks like he can do a lot of things with his face yeah it seems pretty malleable <laughs> yeah and he uh and he and he does that very well so you know uh the first shot of him is almost ghoulish he's having a good time He's got a like a cigarette holder clamped between his le- his teeth, and he's smiling this huge like like skulls grin type smile uh, at at a, at a party. But then also, you know, later when his 
yeah, when his when his girlfriend, I guess, the woman he's seeing dies, there's a very quiet. He he expresses sadness by doing very little, and one of the ways he does that is that there's. I talked about this when we talked about the movie. There's a um, there's a funeral earlier in the movie that he treats as a social event, and there's mm-hmm. a whole speech he has talking about how you behave at a funeral, right? Um, and how you act solemn and and sad and mournful. Uh, and then so when a few scenes later, he actually is that, the little things that he does to differentiate between the way he looked sad when he was at the funeral and the way he is sad in real life, you know, <laughs> when it really happens, uh, is really impressive. You know, uh, he has a lot to compete against uh, in the movie in terms of production design and um, camera movements and all the sort of, uh, you know, it's a very bright and lush film. Uh, and he completely holds his own with every uh, uh, everything else in the in the frame. That sounds yeah. I've seen I've seen photos of him, and he looks like a more expressive Peter Bogdanovich. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. that's how I view him. But uh, uh, let, uh, quick side note: this okay. is a tangent, and it has nothing to do with film. You mentioned his skull's grin, uh-huh. his big grin. I have a question for you. There's a term that I've heard a billion times. And every time I think I know what it means, someone comes along and uses it in a different context. I'm like, you know what? I guess I don't know what it means. Okay. That term is shit eating grin. Oh. What do you, what does that term mean to you? I don't know. I don't, th- uh, I, I don't use it because it sounds gross. It sounds super gross. Um, yeah, so, I don't yeah, use it. I don't really know. Yeah. I refuse to use it until I have a general idea of what it means. I've heard people say like it, it comes with a certain, there's a certain snide quality to it like somebody has this big like almost kind of a braggy smile and just this grin that's like uh just this guy just eats shit but he's (laughs) smiling because he doesn't even know but i've also heard it just somebody who has a big dopey grin on their face and 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 one that's mostly nice and benevolent but dopey but like, in both cases, it refers to a lack of self-awareness. I guess so, yeah. Maybe that's what, it, what, it, what yeah. it's about. Like somebody has eaten shit, and it's probably all over their teeth, <laughs> but that doesn't keep them from smiling, because if they were aware at all, they wouldn't be smiling. Maybe that's the theory. And yes, even as I describe it, I'm nauseated by it, yeah. and I never want to say it again. Okay. But that's one that I just... Uh, it's a term that I was like, maybe, maybe David's heard of things. Maybe he <laughs> yeah. knows. Uh yeah, I'm. I'm still not going to use it because it's. Yeah, no, of course not. Way gross. Okay, what's next? <laughs> way gross. Uh, I'm going to go with director. Okay. Uh, so, I am not a huge fan of Twelve Years a Slave. There are flashes of, I would venture to say, genius in it. Uh, moments that are remarkably emotionally effective. The film overall, I didn't find too effective. There are sequences in it that I love. Uh, but what I will say is that uh, Steve McQueen's direction, I, I oh, feel like ahead. it's a movie that's almost, um, and this is a term I've heard, I think I've heard you use before that it's like, it's less than the sum of its parts. Yeah. There's, there's almost no scene in the movie I can point to that I can say I didn't like. I just don't. Brad Pitt's scene. Oh, I didn't yeah, like that. Go. Yeah. The, okay. I, well, I said almost. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> but as a whole, it doesn't have the effect that it scenes have individually. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and it's and that's the thing is it is kind of there's an almost odyssey quality to it as the character goes from one place to another. Mm-hmm. So it's natural to think of it in segments. Um, and so 
while I do think a director's job is to sort of tie those together <laughs> in one coherent thing, and I think if the character of Solomon were a little bit more developed, uh, I think that would happen. Uh, I don't blame Shiotel for. I think he does a great job. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, there are a number of directorial choices that Steve McQueen makes that I absolutely love. And you and I, neither of us are a big fan, are big fans of shame, uh, right. neither the film nor the concept. Um, and so, uh, I understand it. I understand the good it can do, but, uh, there are people that take it to an extreme. Uh, and so, uh, but there are things in shame directorially that I was like, Oh man, if only they had done this, this would be very effective. And he makes choices that you, that I feel like no one would ever think to make with a movie like this. Hmm. Uh, one is in, uh, how he uses sound design. Uh, it's big, it's boisterous, it's bombastic, other B words, I'm Mm -hmm. sure. Um, and it's frightening at times. There are times when the, the sound mixed with Hans Zimmer's score, uh, makes it feel like a horror movie. And I feel like that is a very fascinating way to approach so somber a topic. Mm -hmm. Uh, but so effective. Like I found myself scared just by virtue of like film tricks. Mm -hmm. But then you realize, well, these characters are scared. How could they not be? Like he really, I think does a good job of putting you in the, the situation or in the emotional state as much as you can be of the character. Um, and so I, I thought that was amazing and just, and maybe I should single out sound design, uh, as well, but I also think it's a directorial choice. Like little things like, you know, the, uh, the hanging scene, the hanging scene would not be as effective. Hold on. I've had this problem a lot. Okay. And this is just semantics, but this seems to be a theme of the episode. Semantics. People refer to the hanging scene. Now there's only one, there's one hanging scene in the movie when he's walking to get something and he sees two people being lynched. But when you're referring to the hanging scene, you're referring to the attempted hanging scene. Yeah. Because I feel like, it's weird. This is just a semantic thing. I okay. feel like it's not a hanging unless he dies from it. See, and I feel it's like I feel like it's not a lynching unless he dies from it. Uh, hanging, a, a, a I will lynching use. Lynching has a whole other like mob thing. Like that's true. Like uh, connotation to it. Yeah. So whenever people refer to the hanging scene in Twelve Years a Slave, I know what they're referring to, but it doesn't like sound right to me. And that's because, the thing is, but I, I could be wrong. It's just my own. Yeah, this could be a tracking situation. Uh-huh. Um, no, well, I'm right about that one. <laughs> uh no it's uh i see what you mean but part of me is like i don't want to say attempted hanging because uh he is indeed hanging there right for a while yeah um but that's a, so it's obviously you know the scene i'm talking about yes. and it's a nice i love every choice that steve mcqueen makes i love that he chooses to keep it a wide shot mm-hmm. uh and unbroken like there's, there is a time when a nice long unbroken take does the job and you don't have to have a fluid camera for it to make a, make a difference. Mm-hmm. And there in the screening room where I saw it, cause that, that shot lasts for, I'm going to say a minute. Okay. It felt like, I don't know, 12 hours. <laughs> right. Um, and what was interesting is in the screening room where I saw it, you could tell probably six people, including me had, uh, an audible reaction and you could, t- but not all at the same time. You could tell at which point that person felt, okay, this is, we're 
you need to cut uh-huh. uh, because it's just too much. And the, the noise was always like, <sighs> it was always that. Uh-huh. And then like five people, like, like four or five people made the noise before I did. And I was just like, I was like, oh man, yeah, that sounds like they can't take it. Man, this thing is going on. <laughs> and then finally just, uh, just, and I couldn't stop myself. Like it, it was just so rough and it's not merely visually, but also again, that sound design, because if we did not hear the mud squishing very gently between, uh, underneath his feet, it wouldn't be quite as horrendous. Mm-hmm. It's a li- it's little details like that, that I think he gets right. Uh, that makes the film so uh, as effective as it is. Mm-hmm. And so from a directorial standpoint, he makes a lot of choices that are kind of counterintuitive, I think, given the nature of the film. But I, I really like a lot of the things that he does. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with, for best director, I'm going to go with David Gordon Green for Prince Avalanche. Uh, because I feel like you and I have maybe at different times, again, the theme of the episode, trying to define things. We try to define what what a director's job like what the actual job description is yeah um and uh, i think the the fact that it's can be it can be so nebulous is why i thought of it when it comes to prince avalanche because if you remember when i talked about the movie as being my second favorite movie of the year i had trouble putting it into words my response to this movie is also sort of vague and nebulous i i'm uh, i i know that i love it but i have trouble pinpointing why and so if you're looking at the director as the guy at the top of the hierarchy who's directing and guiding everything yeah. that it, it's happening he's the only guy that i can credit i mean everyone in the movie is i mean there aren't that many characters but the the acting is is very funny um the dialogue is very good but uh uh I, I I I can't. I have to say that Prince Avalanche works for me because of the it's something about its entirety that I can't nail down. Mm-hmm. So that's why I picked David Gordon Green. Well, that's you know. I mean, do you think do you think people mostly sub- like film fans? Do you think they mostly subscribe to the auteur theory? Um. I we've talked about this before. I think it's become a self fulfilling prophecy. Okay. I, I think it. I think the auteur theory was out there enough to that now everyone involved in a movie, the making of a movie, yeah, sort of defaults to the auteur theory. Yeah, and then it becomes true that yeah. the director is making all the decisions. That's true. Yeah, um, and it also just it saves time to just say, <laughs> you know. Steve McQueen's 12 years a slave, right. David Gordon Green's Prince, Prince Avalanche. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I still haven't seen the movie, but I'm sure I would love it. Uh, the films of his that I have seen, I feel like he tends to create a very consistent tone mm-hmm. within that film. Well, not, I'm sure. Not your highness, but, uh, well, you can't win them all. Um, and then there's a story that I won't repeat cause I think I told it on here before about how Paul Rudd and Emil Hirsch, not that they hated each other, but just yeah, were such different personalities. They weren't yeah, and that's uh, a directorial choice. Yeah, and that that's that, that's the yeah. point of that that's what that story was about. That was exactly what he was going for. But the fact that he made them, um, he you know made the characters come to understand one another, and maybe maybe they like each other at the end. It's not necessarily important that they do, but yeah. they do seem to understand one another. Uh, and he 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 directed these two very disparate. 
uh, actors to to that place. Well, and that's kind of a, and that's a kind of a risky move because if it's basically a movie about two characters that in theory you want your actors to have chemistry and that will that te- that tends to happen best uh-huh. when they kind of get along and then they're on the same page about things but you know it could be risky not merely for maybe the film doesn't work but also on set it could be incredibly <laughs> tense yeah so okay uh, i will move on uh, and i will jump to screenplay and i will go with uh now i did mention this i i wanted not i wanted to try and not repeat myself uh but i will mention neil abute's screenplay for some velvet morning uh, as much as i think the acting is great and it is um that screenplay is so loaded with things. Uh, and first off, he, he's always had an ear for dialogue, but it's so fascinating. Like when you hear great dialogue in the moment, you may not immediately think, Oh, this is a great dialogue, but you just, you're so like, it's, I feel almost aggressive in how engrossed I am in his movies when, when they're working. Um, and so, just I'm hanging on every word. Every line leads to the next line. Nothing seems arbitrary except when the characters themselves are saying something arbitrary. It's all so purposeful and unrelenting. Uh, I would say that's a good description of him as a filmmaker in general is unrelenting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's beautifully written. Uh, every, again, everyone, I recommend you see some velvet morning. There's a bit of a, there's a bit of a twist at the end where that things take a turn that you're like, Oh, okay. I guess, I guess I need to rethink what the film is, um, or, or who these characters are. Cause I think there's more going on than I thought. Um, but, uh, and even then, like you could view that as something of a cop out. Like he didn't know where to go with these characters, but I think he's a smart enough writer that he that he didn't do it just for the wow factor wow factor is not the word to use shock factor (laughs) the shock factor is what i should have said um uh he uh he doesn't do it solely for that he does it to make a statement about his characters and maybe about people in general and then it winds up being a much to my surprise it winds up being a surprisingly non-judgmental film uh, which is, I think, kind of rare for him. He tends to have a very low view of humanity, and I think he does still. But mm-hmm. there's a there's a, a glimmer of of hope there at the end, and it's uh, it's yeah, it's a be- it's a beautiful, wonderful screenplay that deserves people's attention. Uh, I'm going to go with Inside Lewin Davis um, because uh, I guess when I think of what makes a good screenplay, I think of structure and dialogue mm-hmm. and that's kind of the cohen's thing um is that uh there's a there there's a there's a precision to their movies and in some cases almost maybe to a fault if uh you know if you're one of the detractors um but uh for inside lewin davis um it uh it's screenplay as much as great as the performances are the screenplay seems to loom larger for me uh and something that often comes up with the coens is a a sort of sort of uh, postmodernism mm-hmm. um 
uh, and the fact the fact that the, they build movies in a way that you're aware that they're movies the whole time yeah um is risky because it could be distancing and again to some people who are Cohen detractors it is i don't find it is i'm not even um, a, detra- a detractor and i occasionally i feel that uh but the the upside of that is it lets you get away with some stuff and one of the things what i almost picked for supporting actress was carrie mulligan because uh carrie mulligan in inside lewin davis her character is doing something that i think probably any like screenwriting teacher would tell you not to do mm-hmm. which is have a character that is only represented by one emotion all the time yeah <laughs> like there's there's very little difference to you know uh, at any given scene yeah. she's it's a, always it's a bit more forgi- it's a bit more forgivable with supporting characters certainly right, 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 but right. but yes uh but the coens because they've created a world where you kind of understand that the characters might be more representations than people mm-hmm. uh maybe you know representations either of a theme or uh, of um lewin's psyche maybe yeah uh it's okay and so it walks it, it walks that very tight precise line in the way that almost all of their movies do uh and that's that's why yeah it's that is a that is a wonderful screenplay it occurred to me that like yeah, I guess I guess because it plays so high in my top ten, I feel like I shouldn't necessarily like single it out mm-hmm. in this episode, but I could have for a number of yeah, things. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I think I may wind up uh, throwing in an extra supporting actor in there. Okay. Um, and I'll jump to that now. Supporting actor. Okay. Uh, at the moment, I have a two-way tie. Uh, I will add a three-way tie, uh, and I will just throw in very quickly Stark Sands in inside Lewin oh, Davis. Yeah. Uh, it's a film with a lot of great supporting performances. Ultimately, um, I could hitchhike back. <laughs> I, I, I can't even, I, I know I've, I, I'm aware of that actor. I don't know where I have seen him, but I know I've seen him somewhere. Uh, and then he's a good singer. I know that he had, uh, I think some, some Broadway experience. So it doesn't surprise me okay. that he's a good singer, but he plays this guy who is in the army but still aspires to be like a folk singer, um, but is so accommodating that you almost think that somehow, how is it possible for somebody to be so nice and that's funny? Uh huh. But they found, but first off, he's written beautifully, but also the way he plays him is just, you know, like, what is it? Conversely, I could do Uh that. And just, and things like, when he's eating, he's just sitting and eating cereal uh-huh. and then drinks the milk because he can't leave anything behind. And uh-huh. then just like, well, it, that was very good. That's his stomach. Yeah. And just like everything but, the character does is so deliberate. Yeah. But what I would like, uh, what I would say to Cohen detractors who say that they're maybe a little dismissive of their characters uh, or mean to sometimes to their characters. Mm-hmm. Um, Stark Sands is kind his character is kind of a... Uh, a joke in a lot of ways. Yeah. And then right before he leaves, he has that great moment where you, you realize that, uh, it's one of the, not the, certainly not the first, one of the earlier sort of hints that, Oh, Lewin is the pathetic one yeah. here. Like he said, he said, he's so smug and he says something. I can't remember what he says. Something dismissive about being in the army or, yeah. or whatever. Um, and Stark Sands has this little speech about what it really means that the, the, the the violence or the fascism or whatever part of it is not 
like that's that's incidental to him. It means all these other things. Yeah. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> sorry, suddenly he's not a joke. He's because you've built up this character who's so earnest that when he just by speaking his mind, not trying to be mean, puts Lewin in his place, it carries a lot of weight. Yeah. Like you know he's not vindictive. Yeah, he's not trying to <laughs> score points, he's not trying to make Lewin feel bad, he's just saying and he's not even really trying to defend himself. He's merely explaining his his attitude. And of course this does come after because we had a bit of a introduction to him before he performs and then after. And the performance and the fact that he is a good singer and his song is quite good, mm-hmm. um, I think that goes a long way with us. And so I really like that character, and I think he does a great job. Uh, I will also bring up, I'm not sure how this will go. I'm not sure if you're a fan, but uh, Paul Dano in 12 Years a Slave, I think um, it turns in a really good, hard performance. Um and it goes to this idea. He's just a carpenter uh, working on uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's plantation. And he is very racist. Um, <laughs> and But what's more, in the same way that you, you talk about Leonardo DiCaprio in uh, Django Unchained, he seems to, it's not that he's trying to convince, it's not like he thinks, oh, maybe these guys are fine. And he's trying to convince himself otherwise. It's more that he... I, I feel his sense of insecurity and his feel of his feeling of inferiority, especially when uh, Solomon offers an alternate solution that Paul Dano's character didn't realize. And so and he just lashes out with such anger like there's, you know, I've, I've been in situations where I feel like uh, there's just something I want to figure out. And I feel like I deserve to figure it out because I worked so hard on mm-hmm. it. And then somebody else just strolls in and does it. And I'm like, are you shitting me now? So like, and I, so I feel shame and inferiority in those moments. Add to that, this feeling that the character must have of this person is not even a person and they have bested me. And the amount of just rage, like I see it. Uh, it doesn't feel like, He's like, all right, this character's a racist asshole, so I'll just play that. He knows why this character is so mad. And then, like, there's a scene where he's, like, explaining to the group of slaves how he runs things, and he sings this horrible little song. Yeah. And it's a directorial choice as well as a performance. The fact that they let the song go on for a while, like, it shows, yeah, this guy is really committed to his racism. Uh-huh. Uh, and I know that Paul Dano is kind of a divisive actor. There are people who thinks he overplays things or that he, he specializes in a certain type of role. I can't really argue with either of those, but I thought it worked really well for this character. Yeah. I like, I seem to like Paul Dano and everything almost despite myself. Like, yeah. I feel like, like you're saying, I agree. Like, I feel like, Oh, I should be sick of Paul Dano's thing by now. Yeah. But then he manages to make it work in every movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the last uh, the last one in the supporting actor category is Fred Melamed in uh, In a World. Mm-hmm. I really loved his performance. Um, I I tend to like, you know, in the same, you know, you mentioned Carrie Mulligan that she's kind of only one, playing one thing, but I think she plays it very well. Uh, and I think it, they make it work in the tone of the film. But um, I do tend to like performances. <coughs> both characters that are written a certain way, but also in the performance, like not overplaying a negative trait or a positive trait. And with Fred Melamed's character in, in a world, he could play him as overly negative. He's 
kind of oblivious to the feelings of his daughters, like he's dating a much younger woman, he has an ego to him, and also just the general way he carries himself is just like pompous and ridiculous. Uh, and he plays all of that, plays it in a way that I believe that he could arrive at these places. Uh, but there's also a genuine benevolence to him. Uh, like he wants good things for his daughters and he'll do what he can, but he also has a, a, uh, another idea of how things should work and, and all that. Um, and then he also, he does have an ego like, but the kind of ego that anybody who's been in a business for 30 years would have, mm-hmm. which is, I've been at this for a long time. I know how it works. And then to feel, and then to be sort of passed over to suddenly, like you hear actors talk about, they've been in Hollywood for 30 years. And then someone says, Hey, I, you know, can you read for me? Can you audition? It's like audition. Are you shitting me? Like you really think I won't be able to do this. Right. Like if you think about me at all for it, are, are you really unsure of it? Like people look at that and say ego. And I say, I, I don't agree. Like if, if you made, yeah. it happens with like athletes too. They give all their best years to a team. Yeah. And then as soon as they're a little older and they're not, at the top anymore the team doesn't there's no loyalty to them yeah for the years they've put in yeah and i think that's what uh fred melnet is playing yeah. there that he feels like he should have some seniority yeah 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 and so there's so you could look at that and just say entitlement but i feel like it's an understandable kind of entitlement that anybody would have uh so he's kind of this character who's not wholly negative and not always hilarious He's just, and he feels very real, and I was not expecting that from that character. Uh, but he's very good at, at diffusing things with his tone of voice. I know you haven't seen A Serious Man. I know, I need You've to. You've got to see it. He is so much fun I in that film. That. Okay, uh, I will also, like I did with Supporting Actress, I will do a tie. The first one, I don't have to talk about too much. And, but different, unlike Supporting Actress, where the two roles were similar, these, other than the fact that they're kind of, bigger guys couldn't be more different uh one of them is jonah hill in the wolf of wall street yeah um because i like you you talked about comedy a number of times earlier uh to to create uh a character who is consistent and also be able to go for the joke Mm -hmm. sometimes those two things are at odds you know sometimes you see movies even jonah hill movies like say 21 jump street where i feel like there are times when the movie seems less concerned about its characters and more concerned about the joke uh and um jonah hill proves in the that he in the wolf of wall street that he can do uh improvisation and that improvisation improvisation is so connotatively tied to comedy Mm -hmm. that sometimes maybe you forget that uh, people, people tend to forget that it's not, that's not all it is. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a lot of improvisation in the Wolf of Wall Street. And, um, that doesn't just mean Jonah Hill coming up with funny shit to say, although it does it sometimes, you know, when he's like, besides they did cure cancer. That's why they were, that's why they were so expensive. Um, that's very funny, but he never forgets who the character is. Right. He, he improvises not as Jonah Hill coming up with funny stuff. He improvises as Donnie. There's, there's a line that, it's my favorite line of the film, and it's his. Uh, it might be mine, too, actually. It's the Benny Hanna line. Oh. <laughs> where, it's, well, it's the same scene. My favorite line is that when he's like, uh, uh, I don't think I'll ever not love getting fucked up. 
which oh, is yeah. in the same scene. Yeah, and there's kind of a poignant yeah. quality to that. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the Benny Hanna line, uh, whether it was written by Terrence Winter, uh-huh. whether it was improvised, someone deserves an Oscar for that. <laughs> because uh, without going into a lot of detail, the line is, I'll tell you one thing, I'm never eating a Benny Hanna again. I don't care whose birthday it is. <laughs> and he says it with such <laughs> sincerity. He gets a la- he gets a laugh by not going for the laugh. Mm-hmm. And it is so brilliant. He said like this is the most serious thing uh-huh. this character has ever said <clears throat> in his life. Yeah, and I think that makes the the character more uh used poignant, but it's more impactful mm-hmm. to think that this this uh He's a monster. He's he is concerned with literally no one's welfare but his own. Yeah. At every from the moment he wakes up to the moment he goes to sleep. Yeah. That he's uh almost psychopathically driven. Yeah. Um and there's a lot of humor to be mined from that, but the fact that Jonah Hill makes him makes it believable makes it all the more scary. Yeah. Oh, what a wonderful performance. I, I didn't see Dallas Buyers Club. I still have the screener. I want. I really want to watch it. It's very good. Um, and so it's entirely possible that Jared Leto absolutely deserved that Oscar. But it's just like I was happy that Jonah Hill was nominated. But I found I did not get the satisfaction from that that I wanted. Uh-huh. He needed to win. <laughs> I love that performance so much. Uh, and then my other one is very different, uh, and I don't know how to say the guy's name. Patrick Desumsau, I think, or something like that. He's from Stranger by the Lake. Okay. And he's uh, the only uh, – I've just talked about the movie takes place at a, a cruising spot. Mm. He's the only guy who's not there for that. Or maybe he is, and we don't really know. I hate to ask, he's, but what else – why else would he be there? He's on vacation Okay. by himself. He's recently been divorced from a woman. He's, okay. a, you know, apparently straight, uh, although, you know, it comes out it's a, that he has had – uh, that he's maybe a little more bisexual than straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he just comes because uh, he says the other side of the lake, if he goes to sit, at the, he just wants to sit by the water and yeah. think on his vacation. And if he goes to the other side of the lake where the families are, uh, he stands out. People think it's weird that he's just sitting there alone. Uh, but because he's like so different than he's, he's because he's not the super toned in shape guy that all the other guys at the cruising spot are. They just ignore him when he goes there. So if it's like where he can go for solitude. Hmm. Uh, and he is, there are, you know, at times some question. the movie, you know, because it's a sort of Hitchcockian mystery, it drops some sort of hints that maybe he's more than what he seems. Maybe he is there trying to cruise and this is a, a ploy of his. But um, I guess in the end, uh, you could have different interpretations. But my read is that he is just uh, a good person. And he's probably the only person in the movie who is pure of motive. Okay. Uh, that's my, my read of it. And that makes him very different than Donnie, obviously. <laughs> uh, but it's such a it's such a warm performance. You can see how someone could become friends with this person very quickly, which is what happens in the movie. Our main guy um, just sits down, you know, gets out of the water and sits down to take a load off one day near the guy and they start talking. And within, you know a few days they're like hanging out there are mentions of them hanging out outside of the beach the movie never leaves that area but that they've like gone to you know left and gone to get a drink or whatever uh and it's yeah i I guess that's what i'm saying is that uh you could 
you could see yourself being friends with this person. He plays he plays goodness without it being uh, sappy. All right, what else? Okay, uh, so let's see what's left. Actress, and then just kind of the miscellaneous. Um, so I'll go. I'll go with actress, and then I'll, I'll end with uh, miscellaneous. So um, this was a very this. Uh, while we don't necessarily think this was a super strong year for film in general, uh, for uh, lead female performances, there was a lot of good stuff this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and one performance that I really responded to it is a comedic performance. And it is uh, Melissa McCarthy in Identity Thief. I did not see the heat. I heard it was not that great. A lot of people didn't really like Identity Thief that much. I think it tries to be too much. The heat is really, really funny. Is it really funny? Okay, all right. I mean, it's not a perfect, like, as a cop procedural, it doesn't seem that actually, it actually doesn't seem very interested in making sense as a procedural, and that's kind of annoying to me. Okay. But it is really funny. Is uh, Is she good in it? Yeah. Can I tell you one of... Sure. My favorite parts of the movie is when she comes, she's got a new lead and she comes over to the apartment where, or the house, wherever, where Sandra Bullock is staying. Um, and she's like, all right, you know, let's go. Sandra Bullock's in her pajamas, meaning like an actual, like matching okay. top and bottom pajamas. And Sandra Bullock's like, okay, well, I have to change. She's like, what is, you know, what's wrong with your pantsuit? And she's, <laughs> a, you know, I was like, these are my pajamas. And she goes, uh, uh, Miss McCarthy goes, well, excuse the shit out of me. I didn't realize you slept in a fucking tux. Go on, get your top hat. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's just one of the many. Uh, oh, that's delightful. Movie that cracked me up. Yeah, she is uh, a national treasure. I love her. I love her comedic sensibility. I love that. For one thing. OK, so I, I mean, I don't mean to sound crass, but she's a larger woman. But her comedy does not come solely from that fact. She crafts characters that are that mm-hmm. and then makes them funny. You know, she reminds me of Chris Farley who did the very much the same thing. Yeah, but I, I, I like her more than Chris Farley, but at the same time, I feel like given enough time, I think he would have developed into a better actor. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's, uh, in Identity Thief, there's a lot going on with her character. Uh, she's often very funny. She makes terrible decisions, but she is a con artist, and she has the ability to back up uh, her actions physically. So, like, if somebody comes after her, she's like, "Okay, well, I need to get out of this situation," and then a quick hand to the throat. <laughs> um, and it's ve- and that's very funny. But you just see, like, she is. And you find I find myself like rooting against her early on because she's, you know, victimizing like innocent people who haven't done anything uh, so that she can go and kind of live, you know, high on the hog for a short time and be popular and all that kind of thing. And then when confronted, she just has all these different ways of getting away. And there's a lot going on there. And so she's remarkably competent. But then you find out more about her character and I think maybe they lay this on a little thick, but just she explains her life a little bit and you realize like, Oh, she's competent because she's really, she's competent in the things that she is because life has required her to be. So Mm. she has had a, a very rough life and has only had herself to depend on. So when, when she's talking about this, you know, it's a bit more of a heartfelt moment. Uh, and she delivers that very well. And but she can turn on a dime and take 
a character from genuinely emotional to genuinely funny. And it seemed, and it's all one character. It's all this. There's no, there, it doesn't feel like a schizophrenic performance where it's like, okay, I'm done being emotional. It is now time to be funny. Like it's seamless how she goes from one, you know, she runs the whole spectrum and I, and she has a nice chemistry with Jason Bateman, admittedly, like it, it goes very well there. But, uh, but yeah, her performance in Identity Thief is one that I think people should watch uh, just as a function of her as a comedic actress. Like, you, did you see Bridesmaids? I forget. I never did. Okay. She's wonder- I do forget that. I talk about it all the time. Yeah, I know. But I, 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 there are some things that I forget. Like, I don't remember what you have seen and what uh, my other co-host Josh has seen. I think neither of you have seen and I think you would both enjoy it quite a bit. I'm sure. But it's, you know, it's like you with your friend Dan. I, uh, he's no friend of mine. I'm right. I'm sure I know that I would probably like bridesmaids, but I oh. stand by the fact that I will hate it because no one can talk about it without talking about one sequence, which, uh, sounds horrifying. to me. And you know what? It's that sequence. I do laugh at it and I don't usually find that kind of humor funny, but I, I think of so many more sequences before that one. Um, and Melissa McCarthy rightly received an Oscar nomination for it. Uh, and it's, I, I love her as an actress. I love that she's getting big roles. And then uh, Jen, uh, reminded me that she was on Gilmore girls. Yeah. Uh, and, and she's I, in drowning Mona. She in drowning Mona. Yeah. Who's she in that? She's, um, uh, she's only in a couple scenes, you know, there, you remember in drowning Mona, there's that weird, like hidden, like, uh, motel with like the standalone little, like, okay. Cottages. Yeah. She and Will Ferrell's Undertaker are okay. like clearly using it for some sort of like S and M escape weekend, and they come out to complain that that uh, I think William Fickner is making too much noise while they're like in their S and M. Like <laughs> they look like Dan Aykroyd and Rosie O'Donnell in yeah. Exit to Eden. Okay. <laughs> Side note: on the long list of movies that you and I get and that other people don't, Drowning Mona is high. Yeah. I think that movie is hilarious. It's, it's amazing. Hilarious. It, one of my favorite lines of all time is when the guy at the end is in the graveyard with the gun to his head. Mm-hmm. And he says, Sheriff, you come one step closer and I'll blow my brains out. And the deputy says, no, 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 no. He's not a sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think William Fickner is delightful. Uh-huh. Um, oh, my gosh. I just want to watch that movie right now. Um but okay, so uh, and thank you for bringing that up because now I'm excited to see that movie. Um, but yeah, so Melissa McCarthy is uh, uh, just I I really J- Jason and I were uh, front of the show. Jason Eek and I were talking about like possible Oscar hosts, and we thought it'd be interesting to see what she could do mm-hmm. with it because she would great. bring a very specific vibe. Yeah, um, that let's, I would enjoy. Let's do it. All right, <laughs> let's make it happen. Let's Resol- see what we can do. <laughs> Resolved. Um, Mine, uh, I feel guilty because we talked about her uh, at some length um, when we did our top ten, but I uh, can't find a better uh, candidate here, and it's Amy Simons from Upstream Color. Okay. Because the character is... Uh, I've come to the conclusion that Amy Simons' character... Oh, well, you know, okay. The movie Upstream Color is science fiction of a sort. Uh, you know, people tend to picture aliens and robots and shit when right. I say science fiction, but that's not... It's not that, but it's... Uh, it is a science fiction. It's you and, and like a lot of science fiction or genre stories, it's using a sort of heightened or unbelievable thing to get at 
some actual truths by right. sort of blowing them up. Uh, so as much as it is unbelievable and crazy what has happened to Amy Simons with this weird, like, worm that has messed with her memories and stuff like that, uh, what I really think that she is, I've come to the conclusion that her character is the sort of realistic, more realistic foil or answer to the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. In okay. that, uh, in another movie, she would be because she because she looks how she looks. She's very, she, you know, she's uh, what's what I'm looking for, petite, yeah, you know, and uh, and very attractive, uh, and is kind of flighty, right? Yeah. Okay. Because of and that again, you wouldn't see the movie and describe her as flighty because you know what's happened to her. Yeah. But uh, it's like when you when you think of like Natalie Portman in Garden State, you know. Like you wouldn't be surprised if she went in and emptied her bank account one right. day. Right? Yeah, if it had turned out she that some sort of worm had eaten away parts of her brain, and that's why she's she's like that. So uh, I think what Amy Summers represents, uh, what her character represents, and what she plays perfectly is uh, the realist. It sort of ties into her, the movie Her or last year's Ruby Sparks, in at least from a male point of view. I know the movie's obviously. If a woman watches, watches Upstream Colors, she probably gets largely different things out of it. But from a male point of view, um, uh, a thing that is really interesting to me is how much Shane Cruz's character can't help her. Yeah. Um, he wants to because I think we would want to. Like when mm-hmm. we see the Manic, Pig- Manic Pixie Dream Girl, the idea is that, oh, you know, she's, uh, you know, it, it, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, uh, I keep using it, but, you know, thanks to nathan raven he uh, yeah he coined that uh but um that that archetype is all about the male characters it's all about what the effect that that she has on him yes and what he uh wants because of her and what i find really fascinating about and i can't think of her name in upstream color is that uh sometimes her flights of fancy or whatever are charming or or sometimes her um attitude is such that you want to that you feel for her mm-hmm. but sometimes you are also really annoyed i think i don't know if you had that but yeah. sometimes you think like god if i really had to live with this person and she was asking me to dig holes in the backyard yeah. because she's convinced of whatever uh that would be exhausting um and again it's just an a sort of uh, magnified idea of what it's like, and I'm using women as an example, but you know, if you're a woman, you feel the same way about men, what it's like to be in a relationship with someone that yeah. uh, you have to take the bad with the good and you have to take not even necessarily bad is not necessarily the word, but the difficult, like there are things, uh, life is difficult on its own and having someone else that you love and live with, eases a lot of that difficulty but mm-hmm. it also adds another, adds some difficulties Absol- and, and yeah. that can be tough to accept i think that's i would you know when i was an immature high schooler dating girls you know in high school i didn't want to deal with their difficulties maybe and right um i probably wasn't a very good boyfriend because of that and that's something that comes with age and experience and and, and maturity and uh again I, I, now i feel like i'm not talking specifically about amy simons's performance because i'm not good at that sort of thing mm-hmm. but um she uh she takes a character that's had a, an un 
implausible thing happened to her yeah and makes uh a perfectly plausible character that works as much as a real person as it does a, a metaphor or a representation. Well, and that's, that's, I feel like you and I are naturally analytical people. And so I think it's probably pretty, not necessarily easy, but I, I feel like we have maybe an easier time of looking at our lives. First off, probably in a narrative form because we, we like movies. Um, but I know that there's a lot of direct lines I can point to and say, I behave this way, positively or negatively, and I can point to this thing that happened in my past. And it's like, that is, certainly there are other examples of this, but this is one I very cl- very clearly remember. And I can draw that line and say, stuff like that very much informs what I say and what I do right now. Mm-hmm. I still have a choice, but that provides some motivation. Not everybody has that, and I'm sure there are tons of blind spots that I, that I have. Uh, some people are just driven by things and they don't know why they don't know what it is, but they know something's going on and they just have to deal with that. And with her character, she knows something has, has happened kind of, she feels like something has happened, but Mm -hmm. she knows that like she has done something. She's made choices that seem out of her control. Now, of course they were, uh, in actuality, but like how often in life do you make a choice and you feel like, how the hell did I arrive at the mental place where that seemed like the best possible option? Whether like I've had conversations with people where like when the conversation is over, I'm like, how the hell did I say what I just said? (laughs) That's astounding to me. Um, And so, and then the thing is the way she plays it, what she has had happen to her is very unlikely, I would venture to say. Um, but she plays it as though it were any other traumatic event. It could have been a rape. Mm. It could have been a uh, loss of a loved one. Or mm. No, let's, let's stick with rape. Something that... something inv- she was violated. Yeah, yeah. something invasive. Um, now, of course, he was as well, but this is from her point of view. And so she acts as though there's she feels kind of you know she feels kind of guilty like she she's kind of responsible mm-hmm. responsible for what happened even if she doesn't remember what happened and just feels a certain degree of shame so the reason the one of the reasons the, the film doesn't feel like an overt sci-fi is because the reactions by the characters are so realistic are so grounded and this unlikely thing could very well have been something that is all too likely and all too possible. Um, and the fact that she doesn't owe that she doesn't play the ridiculousness of the story is, uh, is what helps to sell the story. Oddly enough. Um, okay. Uh, should we knock out our, uh, miscellaneous? Yes. Real quick. Do you want to go back and forth or do you want to do your two? And I do uh, my two or I'll do one and then you do one. Okay. And then, yeah, just so, ba- so back and forth. Okay. okay. I only have two. All right. I only have two. All right. Uh, so, uh, followers of me on Twitter know that I had a lot of choice things to say about, uh, Nicholas winding Reffin's, uh, only God forgives. Mm -hmm. And while narratively, I think that thing is just a disaster. Um, (laughs) no one can argue with that cinematography. Like no, no one. It is so, and admittedly, like, you can't argue with it because it's right there in your face, inches from you, uh-huh. screaming at you. Um, but nonetheless, Larry Smith, the cinematographer, um, it's not just about harsh blues, harsh reds. That's, it's not necessarily easy, 
but it's easy to point at that and say, that's amazing. It's also just the way he frames things, the use of negative space. That's a, I was about to say the use of negative space. Like it's, it's just a, like he creates a tone that fits very well with what Nicholas Re- Winning Refn does. I don't think it fits with the story that is being told, but I don't blame the cinematographer for that. Uh, he creates such a gorgeous, meditative, surreal visual uh, tapestry that I loved looking at the film. And in some cases, I love listening to the film, but like it is first and foremost just a visual i won't even say exercise because that sounds too clinical just a visual experience um and so as much as i may find the film frustrating in some ways like you got to give credit where it's due and it is a beautiful uh mesmerizing film um i'm gonna hold off on cinematography gonna end with that okay i'm not talking about editing and we're talking about the movie uh i keep forgetting the director's name uh it's called blue ruin and uh, I pick, uh, I, I, I single out the editing because I often, the way that I think of editing, as I've talked about before, has to do with, uh, let's see, the director's name is Jeremy Saulnier, Saulnier, maybe. Okay. Um, the way I think of editing has to do with not how many cuts there are, you know, um, as much as, you know, something like Wolf of Wall Street is very uh, well done and very impressive, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the overall pace and cadence, if you will, of mm-hmm. the movie. And I think uh, there's such a sure editorial hand working in Blue Ruin because it has uh, – it, 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 it never gets ahead of itself. It has a pace that – starts rolling and then moves with a sort of slow but very steady inevitability. Mm-hmm. And so there are a number of action sequences in the movie, but the editor, uh, whose name I will find, um, shows uh, Julia Block is her okay. name. Um, a lot of restraint in that even in the action scenes it keeps up this same pace. So the non-action scenes feel just as dreadful and again, inevitable as the action scenes. So you never really get a break, but it's not a movie like I'm trying to think of an example of something that's really constantly intense. It's not like a pain and gain, like a Michael Bay, like you never get a break. It's not like it pins you to the floor. It's more like it's a suffocation. Hmm. Uh, and so the way that she keeps keeps that air hanging over every scene is uh, really impressive. So that's mine. I, I've heard such great things about Blue Ruin. I'm, I'm very you're, excited you're to see gonna it. You're going to love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, the last thing that I will mention is one that uh, I, people have given me some grief about it uh, when I mentioned it on Twitter, but I cannot help it. Uh Original song, there's a guy named Ed Sheeran. He's this kid. He's like 21. Is he like an American Idol guy? No? I don't think so. He might be. I don't know. I don't think so, though. He's Irish. Okay. Um, is he Irish? I think he is. Um, look, one way or another, he's not from around here. Not from around these parts. <laughs> um, well, I guess he wouldn't be American Idol. They have to be American, right? No, that makes sense. You're making a lot of sense. Do. 
You know you do have to have an American passport to be on The Amazing Race. You have to be an American citizen. I did not know that. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, so he wrote a song called I See Fire. <clears throat> I See oh, okay. Fire. You yeah. anticipated my question. Yeah. I, I, I know you at this point. It's been, <laughs> it's been seven years of talking about bullshit and then much longer just talking about whatever. Um, yeah. So, uh, damn it. And now that is exactly how I'm going to think of this song. <laughs> You son of a bitch. And I know that it was me anticipating what you were going to say, but mm-hmm. you, you're in my head. You're like Lecter. Um, when I think, I think in your voice. Um, spoilers. Um, so, yeah, he wrote this song for The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. Okay. And he, uh, the song is, in some ways, one could view it as, what? He looks like one of the O'Doyle kids from Billy Madison. <laughs> Doesn't he? Yeah. He's like super young. He might even be younger than I thought. He's 23. 23. Okay. All right. So, but still super young uh-huh. um, and apparently has a number of albums out. Uh, and so uh, this song, I See Fire, I'm going to have to say it like that. Mm-hmm. You, you son of a bitch. I didn't even say anything. I know, but you're <laughs> laughing like an asshole. Um, the song itself is fine. It's, uh, I find it very effective. I think there's a, a haunting quality to it, but you know, people tend to think of like songs written for films as like, it's like, Oh, that's a great song. It's really wonderful. But they think they tend to think of the song only on its own. And it's like, this is a song written for the film. So how does it work into the film? Does it work? And this is the song that plays basically over the end credits. And you saw desolation of smog, right? Twice. Twice. Okay. Uh, not the I didn't best like it either time. Yeah, not the best movie, but I like the note on which it ends. It ends with holy shit everyone's going to die uh-huh. and this is a terrible thing. And it ends with a very quiet what have we done? Mm-hmm. And then you just see the dragon flying towards a town that it's going to destroy. Mm-hmm. Spoilers. Um and then it then that's the end. And it's like that is a downbeat uh-huh. ending. And then this song kicks in. And the song is, though there is a, a hint of like a, a theme of togetherness, the song is very sparse. There is not a, the, it's not a ornate song. It starts out very, it starts out with him just singing without uh, music. And that I actually don't like because it sounds a little too Irish. Um, but uh, <laughs> it, sounds, problem with that? it sounds like a Gregorian chant or something like that. <laughs> but then the music kicks in, specifically a guitar. And it's just a lone guitar at the beginning, and it creates this sense of, like, mournfulness uh, at, a, at the end of a film that there's a lot of fun action in it, but the film is ending on that note. And, you know, one of the first lyrics in the song is, if this is to end in fire, then we should all burn together. Like, that is not an easy lyric. Um, And it's just, it's a song that, again, it is fine. Uh, I I think it's memorable, and I enjoy listening to it when I'm in a certain mood. Um, But more specifically, because I associate it with the emotional ending of the film, the song takes on greater uh, significance. And I feel like the, I feel like the really great, uh, movie songs that are written for the films. Yes, they can often stand on their own. I think this one does, but to a certain extent, I feel like there's something admirable about a song that is tied quite directly Hmm. to the film to the point where the song helps the film and the film helps the song. 
And so this is uh, an example of that. I really enjoyed it. I like uh, the moon song from her. I love it. It's yeah. beautiful. I just downloaded that the other day. Um, uh, I thought of another thing that Ed Sheeran looks like. Okay. He looks like the kid who played Banshee in X-Men First Class, except <laughs> if he like moved into like a basement and got high and ate Doritos and played video games all the time. That's about right. That's kind of what he looks like. Yeah. You nailed it with O'Doyle. That's it. That is spot on. <laughs> spot on. Um, so you've got a cinematography? Yes. This is me, my final thing. And it's, uh, it's, it's Stoker. Once again, I forgot to look up. I am not on the ball today. Um, I was 45 minutes late for recording today. And uh, why, why were you late? Because I plum forgot that we were <laughs> recording today. Um, I'm not saying that to embarrass you. I just think it's, I think it's funny. Yeah. Uh, um, so anyway, uh, it's Stoker. And here's how, okay, I've been, you know, I'm, I, I don't know if people know that the best uh, show on television is back. It's called Hannibal. Um, Wonderful show. Can't and, argue with you. It has this florid, baroque, purplish sort of look to it that is very beautiful, but also grotesque. Yeah. And so I'm given to, uh, oh, Chung Hung Chung is apparently the guy's name. Uh, anyway, who shot Stoker. So I'm giving to describing Stoker or thinking of it in those terms right okay. now. But Stoker is like... Uh, the look of it is everything so heightened and uh, and 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 blown out and and bright and colorful, but also uh, foreboding. It's like imagine a a corpse that's bloating. Okay, right. And as it as it bloats, it's sort of, the skin sort of stretches and it becomes shinier. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. That's how I feel about Stoker. There's a beauty to it, but a grotesque beauty, and also the feeling that it's about to burst. Okay. Uh, and uh, I don't have much more to say, but that's just how I, how I feel about the look of Stoker at every moment. That is a fascinating and, of course, horrifying metaphor. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's um, yeah. That sounds that sounds really great, and I know exactly what you mean. Uh, I know that you were not intending on talking about Hannibal, but what I will say is like. I, I can it, talk about him whenever you want. It's, okay, like I'm t- like I don't I don't want to get ahead of myself, but if Hannibal continues the way it it is, if Hannibal manages to ride out a number yeah. of seasons being this good, it's gonna be all it's all time great status. It's gonna be up there with shows in the echelon of shows that I don't think other shows could even touch. Yeah. Uh, you know, like it's going to be up there with my Buffy's and my Sopranos and stuff if it continues to be this good. Yeah. Uh, and if you think I'm overselling it, then you don't know what you're talking about. I, and you should just watch the show because it is, it's amazing. It's not just the best show on TV right now. It's that probably by a long shot for me. Uh, it is on, on pace again, we're only beginning the second, second season, but on pace to become, uh, an all time great. It's, uh, I can't really argue with you because what I will say is I don't think I've ever seen anything like it on TV. It is, it, it Brian Fuller has such a, we were talking about this before, so I'll just be repeating. You, I'm repeating myself to you. But, right. Uh, it has such a command of tone and, and you're right. I don't ex- remember exactly how you described the visual sense, but when you said purple, I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> I don't know how, but you totally nailed it. And the general tone of just bleak. Yet, surprisingly ornate, hopelessness. It feels mm-hmm. like happiness is not an option 
for the people in this world. Unless you're one of the killers. I think that's the oh. that's the the sort of dark beauty and alluring beauty and the thing that maybe can turn some people off quite understandably about it is that it uh now the, um I've mentioned uh, Pajiba.com. It's a website I read a lot. And one of the writers back during season one, and I can't remember who it is, so I'm not going to try and guess because I'll get it wrong, was comparing Hannibal to the show Criminal Minds, which is not a show that we watched. Okay. But the Criminal Minds, I guess, in his comparison, I think it was him, um, is that Criminal Minds starts, every episode starts with a horrific act of a madman. Yes. Right? And then over the course of the episode, they follow clues and it becomes understandable and solvable and therefore safe. It starts with something that's terrifying to you and then over the course of the hour makes it safe because you can understand it. Mm-hmm. And this guy, uh, this writer from Pajaba, his point was that Hannibal tries to do the opposite of that. It, yeah. It, show, it, it, it forces you to confront that the only person that these acts make sense to are the killers themselves. Yeah. And that they... Um, you know, I, I just finished reading the book Red Dragon, uh, and there's a there's a thing in the very end about how both mercy and murder are human constructs. That hmm. the that I mean, obviously there was death and killing, right? But the idea of murder is something that we invented, and the only reason we think of it as murder, uh, you know, the the killer in Red Dragon says to his friend, "The police will say I murdered these people," but he says he changed them. Mm. Uh, because they're only murdered if you're looking at it from the de- victim's point of view. Yeah. If you're looking at it from the killer's point of view, they've become a part of him. Yeah. They're a part of his truth and his reality now and his art, if you will. Yeah. And that's what Hannibal is about, which is a horrifying thing to behold, but it does it uh, really alluringly. It's it's one of the only instances, because you, you run across this kind of thing, uh, certainly in, in Red Dragon and Manhunter, but also in other shows and other films where... It's like, ah, this cop, he can catch him because he can think like him. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and this is the first instance I can think of that that really explores, like, how horrifying must it be? It's like, let me ask you this. Like, how would you feel knowing that you were able to completely replicate with your own mind the thought process of a child molester slash murderer? Right, yeah. Like, you don't want to think that you don't want to believe that you are able to lock into that. The only, and when you do, you realize, wow, there's not a whole lot of difference between me and these people and not a whole lot of difference between other people and these people. Mm-hmm. Anybody is capable of this if just the right things happen or one could say the wrong things happen. Right. And that and it spends so much time with that very unsettling realization that I just I am flabbergasted like every time i watch an episode i'm like how are they doing this i don't even <laughs> and mean how, how is nbc letting them <laughs> yeah that's my first that's one of my first thoughts is how did they get away with this but also like how does brian fuller have the patience to explore this the way he's doing it like it moves so and i mean this in a good way so slowly so deliberately i'll say deliberately uh-huh. it moves so deliberately like episode to episode there's no guarantee that there's going to be a major plot development. Right. There might be something that's interesting. Like in, you know, I just watched season uh, episode one of season two. There's a a new case introduced, but the only there's no real changes. There's just developments, mm-hmm. especially between characters, and it's just how do you how does anybody do that? Even on even now, where there have been some really wonderful shows that that are like that, like. 
it's just I can't I I cannot speak about it highly enough. I really love it. And as I told you, uh, listeners who've been listening for over a year know that uh, David and I f- saw the first two episodes at WonderCon yeah. last year. And uh, while we were s- sitting in line, this guy came up and decided to give people shit about going to going in to watch Hannibal. Uh, and I was very angry at that guy at the time. And I'm now retroactively more angry at him because, like, this is one of the most unique and best shows I've seen in a long time. And you, sight unseen, maybe because you thought, oh, how good can a, could a show about Hannibal Lecter be? Like, you felt the need to make me feel bad because I happen to be giving it a try. Yeah. And it was okay to be skeptical. I mean, sure. given, given what has happened to the Hannibal Lecter character. Right. And given the fact that it just seemed like a you know, a quick attempt to cash in on the sort of recognizability of it. Yes. It was okay to be skeptical. That guy was just a dick though. Yeah. I would say okay to be skeptical until you see who made the, who who the showrunner was like who the creator was. And so, so yeah, in retrospect, I was very furious at that guy and I'm super excited to keep watching the show. It is not a show that can be binge watched. Like it will (laughs) destroy you and probably give you nightmares. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, so you should see Stoker. Yeah, it's really good. And uh, you can find us at battleshipretention.com. You can uh, that's where you can find our movie reviews and links to all the other podcasts in the BP fleet. Uh, you can uh, email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at uh, the pretension. Forget it. I took one one week off. I'm forgetting everything. Man, oh man. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at More Lessons. That's the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is at MoreThanOneLesson.com. My other podcast, which you can find at BattleshipRetention.com, is the weekly television podcast, Hey, Watch This, with Paul and David. Um, I don't remember what we'll be watching this week. Okay. The Goldbergs and something else. Uh, right. I don't remember. Um, I, will, I will say real quick that... Uh, David was recently on an episode of What the Fuck Are You Watching? Talking about the reflecting skin. Um, I am on this week's episode of What the Fuck Are You Watching? Talking about Batman Returns. So if you want to hear more of us, just uh, tune into that show. Yeah. Which and you can also find at BattleshipRetention.com. Yes. And watch the reflecting skin. You can get the DVD on Amazon for... I mean, it'll cost you more in shipping than it will to get the DVD. It's really cheap. Fair enough. All right. Um, that's it. Thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.